0: Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I bring an old friend into the studio. His name is Jesse Eisenberg. He has worked pretty much everywhere in the world of financial journalism. If you are at all curious as to why, during the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression, effectively nobody was sent to jail—at least, nobody of any importance. A couple of burger flippers uh, who were hired to fabricate mortgage documents uh, were, were threatened with prosecution, a handful of mid-level uh, traders, the fabulous Fab got uh, finger-wagged at him and paid a fine, but all of the people responsible for an epic collapse in, in the financial uh, markets and the credit markets uh, escaped unscathed. If you're curious as to how that came about then you need to hear Jesse Eisenberg's story. He is a very thoughtful uh, investigative journalist, n- has won numerous prizes, including the Pulitzer. Uh, I don't find a whole lot to disagree with in his new book, whose title I cannot say on the radio, uh, but I can say in the podcast, so you get to hear me uh, cuss there. With no further ado, here is my conversation with Jesse Eisinger. My special guest this week is Jesse Eisinger. He is currently a reporter for ProPublica. He began his career at the South Pacific Mail in Santiago, Chile, spent years at the Wall Street Journal, where he helped to create the Ahead of the Tape column and the Long and Short column. I originally know him from his work at thestreet.com. He has written for the New York Times Dealbook, The New Yorker, The Atlantic. He was the Wall Street editor at Condé Nast. In 2015, he won the Loeb Award. And he, in 2011, he won the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting on Questionable Wall Street Practices. It was notable because it was the first ever Pulitzer given for online journalism. He is also the author of a book whose name I actually can't say on the air, (laughs) but we'll give it a, we'll give it a loose, I'll leave uh, one word out, and it's called The Chicken Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. Jesse Eisenberg, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you so much for having me, Barry. I know Jesse for a long time. I'm a fan of his work, and there's so many fascinating things in this book, which is written pretty much in the sweet spot of the world. I inhabit finance, legal, and bad behavior. Those three (laughs) Venn diagrams overlap, and this is the book that's the result of it. Let's begin where the book pretty much starts out uh, with Enron and Arthur Anderson. How significant were those two companies to the future lack of prosecution by the SEC and the Justice Department? They were
1: crucial uh, is what my argument is. And you know, so I started this book with this puzzle, why don't we prosecute top corporate executives anymore? And I think it goes beyond just the financial crisis. Of course, we all know that no top bankers were put in prison for the financial crisis, but I think it started beforehand this problem at the Justice Department and it persists to today and it goes beyond the banks to industrial companies, retailers, tech companies, pharmaceuticals. Um, And so I was trying to figure out this puzzle And I started with Enron because. If you remember, and of course you do, we were talking at the time, um, in after the bubble burst, the NASDAQ bubble burst, uh, there were a wave of prosecutions, not just Enron, but WorldCom, Adelphia, Tyco, uh, Global Crossing.
0: Lots of executives did Lots, some time in the Graybar Hotel. Hard, uh,
1: exactly, hard time uh, in the pokey. And so what changed? And really, I locate this as the be- the backlash and the problem started then, in the kind of lobbying effort, a corporate and white-collar defense bar lobbying effort against what they saw as overly zealous prosecutions of Enron and particularly Arthur Anderson.
0: They were lobbying Congress. They were lobbying the Bar Association. They were lobbying the Judges Association. They pretty much were pulling every lever of power, the defense bar I'm referring to, that was possible.
1: Exactly. And what they were arguing was that the prosecutors were overly aggressive, that they had Um, overcharged the executives, uh, particularly of Enron, and I focus on Enron, um, and then Arthur Anderson, which was the kind of seminal corporate prosecution.
0: So let's talk about Anderson a little bit, because I I find people have consistently mischaracterized that period. Let me ask you, what killed Arthur Anderson? Arthur Anderson killed Arthur Anderson,
1: Um, and we should be very clear about that. And um, one of the big goals that I have in the book is to rehabilitate the prosecution of Arthur Anderson because occasionally you do have to prosecute companies and put them out of business when they are rife with uh, fraud, when they are serial uh, abusers of the laws, the corporate laws, as Anderson was. Uh, Now, what happened with Anderson is that they— they destroyed documents in the Enron Well, back up. Before we,
0: before we get to that, Yeah, they had gone through a series of snafus where, as auditors, they did a terrible job. Companies in their charge got away with lots of exactly. fraud. And they engaged in all these cons- consent decrees where they said, okay, you caught us. We promised to do better. This time we mean it. We're really not going to do much more fraud. And then as soon as... Enron went down, they began this aggressive policy of hey, we haven't been subpoenaed yet, shred everything.
1: Exactly. And as uh, Michael Chertoff, who was the head of the criminal division at the time, says in my book, this wasn't an ice cream company that was destroying documents. This was a company that was, uh, part of its business was legal advice for investigations. Uh, and so and arguably preserving documents. And Right. And that means not destroying documents and not destroying evidence. What um, They went on an orgy of tons and tons of document destruction. And but,
0: emails. Destruction as well, not just physical paper. uh,
1: Multiple cities, not just one person. (laughs) Um, So this was a kind of system-wide thing. But but to in the lead up to the crash, the Nasdaq crash, there was a pandemic of accounting uh, malfeasance at in corporate America. And chances are, all the all the big auditors at the time were guilty. But chances were, if you were one of the bigger accounting frauds of the era you were being audited by arthur anderson
0: and and to put a little flesh on that people always blame the indictment but weeks before the indictment lots of but post enron bankruptcy lots of big clients were fleeing arthur anderson and then two weeks after the indictment worldcom goes belly up more accounting fraud and guess who their auditor was exactly
1: just like enron arthur anderson was the auditor for for worldcom and so i argue that anderson was going down and not only that i argue that the partners wanted it to go down wanted it to unwind now this wasn't a corporation it wasn't publicly traded it was a partnership and to avoid the liability from all the lawsuits they literally had Dozens and dozens, maybe over a hundred lawsuits that they were facing, and they were going to face more with Arthur uh, with WorldCom. Um, you know, that was it was a convenient excuse to say that the indictment caused the uh, failure of the company. Of course, it didn't help. Um, but uh, <laughs> <Never does. laughs> but you know what? Uh, my argument is that sometimes prosecutors can't worry about that, uh, that their jobs are to do justice. Their jobs are
0: not to cushion the blow for failing companies. You write in the book, today's Justice Department has lost the will and indeed the ability to go after the highest ranking corporate wrongdoers. Discuss. Well, so it's been building since the backlash
1: to Arthur Anderson. And what I argue now is that after Anderson, they turned to corporate settlements. Uh, And in doing corporate settlements, deferred prosecution agreements, non-prosecution agreements.
0: Now, let me stop you right there. Deferred prosecution agreement is, here's the deal. We're going to have you sign these documentations. And we're not going to throw the case out, but we're going to hold it in abeyance. And if you could be good little boys for a year— a year from now, we'll we'll toss this out. Exactly. X number of years, we're going to...
1: Uh, we, we've indicted you, and we can prove it in a court of law, they say. <laughs> but we're just going to put this aside for now and uh, try not to do anything again. Now, um, there are many problems with this. One is that there's no enforcement mechanism. Nobody really looks at it. Sometimes they install corporate monitors. That's a problem, a problematic solution.
0: Why, An- why is that problematic?
1: Well... It's problematic because this has become a giant racket for oh, really? big law. Um, and big law both likes the settlements. They That provides a lot of work for them to um, investigate the corporations. They, big law firms like Paul Weiss, Debevoise, Covington & Burling – do these investigations for these companies, for their mm-hmm. corporate clients, um, and then they deliver the results to the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice essentially reviews it without really looking at um, the do, conducting Wait, the investigation in and of itself. You're saying the
0: itself. DOJ outsources the investigation to the defendant's the lawyers.
1: The dirty secret of American corporate jurisprudence is that we have privatized and outsourced in corporate criminal investigation. That's astonishing. And not only have we done it, we have privatized and outsourced it to the criminals themselves <laughs> to conduct investigations of themselves. Alleged criminals. Alleged criminals. They <laughs> hire their own attorneys. Their own attorneys conduct their investigations. These private law firms then deliver the results to the Department of Justice, which reviews them, and it gets worse because the prosecutors who are reviewing them are tend to be People who are job candidates for the very I was ab- law firms that I was about are conducting to, the investment I was about to
0: ask you, didn't we see after you know the early 2000s, these lifer prosecutors who had been in DOJ and SEC and the Second Circuit, they all end up going uh, when, when the de- to be fair, the departments are changing and it's no longer the job they loved – but they set a path and they end up working at these big firms are very well compensated and that now that path is well trod uh, from from the prosecution. Exactly
1: department. the most prestigious offices in the Department of Justice, the Southern District of New York, which does most of the Wall Street prosecutions and many corporate prosecutions, and Maine Justice down in DC, um, those are now effectively like post, uh, Juris doctoral. Uh, um, let me try that. Grad Those are essentially postdoc um, employment for lawyers who are training to become white-collar defense work. Was it um, always that not, way. it is never. It has not always been that way. In fact, in the 1960s, uh, it wasn't that way at all. Uh, these p- prosecutors did not go to these white-shoe firms. White-shoe firms didn't really have this big corporate criminal investigation they look, business.
0: They looked down on criminal defense, even— White collar criminal
1: defense. Exactly. And so they, some of them went into kind of transactional work, um, which was very different. White-collar criminal defense was conducted by boutiques. The Department of Justice focused on individuals, not on corporates, mm-hmm. uh, not on corporations. Um, and so there's been a complete transformation. And what I argue in the book is that big law's approach to how it defends corporations has developed alongside and in symbiosis with the Department of Justice's w- way that it approaches corporate prosecutions investigations and prosecutions and they've all sort of influenced each other and there's been this cross-pollination and then they go back and forth Mm -hmm. from the government to the private sector and back to the government and back to the private sector again and now it's almost like you know that line uh at the end of animal farm where you could no longer tell who the government people are and who the defense people are who the Pigs are on the one side and who the pigs are on the other side. And it's a it's a deeply profoundly troubling and corrupt system when it allows corporate malefactors, individuals to get off.
0: so you you describe in the book how the uh, Department of Justice loses the ability to prosecute criminal litigation against corporate wrongdoers explain that so what happens is they find that
1: these settlements are much easier to reach Mm -hmm. because they the company has to come to the table and negotiate the company says well we're just being extorted we we have to pay a fine because um the cloud of a government investigation is so great we must resolve this the prosecutor that works and you know there's some validity to that Mm -hmm. Um, and the prosecutor uh, then says, well, we're going to fine you an enormous amount of money. What the prosecutors don't really do anymore is in, look at individuals. And the point of the Enron investigation, the point of starting the book with the Enron narrative, is that they put enormous amount of resources. They devoted an entire team to do the that one prosecution individual. The Enron Task Force. The Enron Task Force. And they essentially locked them in a room and made them study the company from the bottom up and start indicting lower level people to get to the top just the way you do with a mob family. Um, You have to roll the soldiers to get to the capos. That art has really been lost over the last 15 years. And the Department of Justice just does not do that anymore. They essentially stop at the middle. When they prosecute individuals, and occasionally they do, at a big bank, they're essentially stopping at the trader who is responsible. Sometimes they do a low-level trader. Sometimes they do his or her boss. But they rarely get higher to the executive level.
0: You were at the Journal for a long time, weren't you?
1: Yeah, almost seven years.
0: You, And, in fact, you helped to create the ahead of the tape column which just ended what is that like a 15 year run yes i was really sad to see Me it go too. a daily column that was a you went from daily to the, uh, long and short was a weekly i have written every column
1: uh, known to man, I've written a daily. I've written a weekly three times a week. I've right. written a weekly. And then you went to a monthly, monthly. A portfolio. <laughs> if I do one to decade. then
0: oh. then you move to to ProPublica where it's quarterly. Yeah, and now the book is out after a year, so it's annual. <laughs> exactly, and soon soon it will be a decile publication. <laughs> I'm schedule. trying to convince my editor right. to let me that, write that once won't a happen. Decade. So so I I often ask authors, hey, what's the inspiration behind the book? But well, with you. I know what the inspiration is because the (laughs) lack of prosecution has been infuriating to all of us, either on Wall Street, in finance, in journalism. What was the last straw that made you say, I really have to write a book about this? Well, you know, uh, we wrote about cdo's
1: and the magnetar trade mm-hmm. betting against cdo's for your own uh account
0: a well-received um, series uh, that right that's led the, to the series pulitzer. that
1: won the pulitzer um which we were really grateful and lucky for and um uh after that w- my colleagues and i sat around expecting to see some uh criminal investigation, no. and nothing happened. And then we watched that nothing happened with Lehman Brothers, or AIG, or Bank of America, or Citi, you know, nothing. Go down the list. Right. Um, and, you know, countrywide, and it was utterly baffling, and an enormous scandal, and, and so this has been plaguing me since then, obsessing And,
0: and a, the economy, and our entire body politic.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it contributed to Trump. It certainly contributed to the rise of the two most potent movements on the left and the right occupy wall street and the tea party uh i think it it undergirds the anger of trump and it undermined hillary clinton and obama because i I think people mistrusted them because they thought they were in the pocket of wall street uh for this reason uh, as paramount so i thought it was one of the great scandals of our time and i thought it really deserved some kind of serious accounting that uh tried to get at the deep fundamental and corrosive aspects um in society this is not an easy problem and it's not an easy solution and there's not it's not a conspiracy you know tim geithner did not call up eric holder and say lay off it's something more troubling because it's something more
0: pernicious and and more fundamental so i have not not so much a conspiracy. But I have argued that the, the greatest innovation uh, of Wall Street has not been the ATM or, or securitization, but that it's been convincing the Department of Justice and the SEC that if you prosecute us, the entire economy is coming down. Right. All right so, how? first of all, I have yet to find anything that demonstrates that that's wrong, and second, how, you're you're really saying that it's much more systemic than that moment this is something that's taken place over a long arc of time you know we
1: saw it in the financial crisis most prominently um that's when it became oh, clear that this was a big problem but it really was building before then there was no prosecution of the back stock option backdating scandal which was huge huge which was huge tremendous paper trail should have been easy to prosecute should have been much easier to prosecute than it was which raises a question of whether the skill set is there whether the will is there whether they devote enough resources to it and i don't think that the answer is yes to any of those questions and the um uh, but you know it wasn't it's not just the banks that was a wonderful innovation that the banks said were too big to, to jail uh, too big to fail and too big to jail but you're seeing this with recidivist pharmaceutical companies sure. Pfizer has had has, um, a subsidiary plead guilty to one problem it has had uh, a That's DPA a it has an NPA NBA it's a on and on and on you see Walmart getting away with bribery in Mexico that uh, the New York Times had them dead to rights with all the internal documents um We are seeing this across the economy. And um, so this is impunity at the highest level of corporate America. What they do instead is prosecute CEOs of smaller companies Mm -hmm. or that, Head of a hedge fund, Raj Rajaratnam, can be prosecuted because he's committed a crime that the prosecutors are comfortable prosecuting inside of trading. It's an easy thing to sell mm-hmm. to a jury. And when um, Galleon goes out of business, it only puts five or six or 10 or 20 people out of business. Right. It's not putting the entire... Uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people out of work, and
0: they're terrified. My special guest today is Jesse Eisinger. He has written for such August publications as The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, New Yorker, The New York Times, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He is currently the author of a book whose title I cannot say, but I, we can at least talk about where the the title came from. So the actual title is The Chicken Blank Club, the Justice Department and the Failure to Prosecute White Collar Criminal, blank being a, a <laughs> word that George Carlin would appreciate as one of the seven words you can't say on TV. Tell us about the derivation of the sure, title. Sure. My children love the title, which makes my wife really not like the title. <laughs> um,
1: so, but uh, And I'm so glad that Simon & Schuster... Uh, Uh, Went with it. Um, I think they went with it because it is actually organic. It is a real statement that came from, of all people, Jim Comey, who uh, you may remember from such things as the testifying in front of the Senate after being fired for being FBI director. But 15 years ago, he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and he had just replaced Mary Jo White, and Mary Jo White was a legend, Mm -hmm. Um, and he comes in, and he gathers everybody together, and uh, they're a little trepidatious about him, um, and he gathers all the criminal prosecutors, and these guys, you have to understand, are the best of the best of the best. They've gone to the best high schools to go to the best colleges to get into the best law schools to perform the best to get to the best clerkships, and then they go to the Southern. District. These are talented and brilliant people. Um and they all think of themselves as talented and <laughs> brilliant people. Um and so he gathers them all and he says, How many of you have never lost a case? And a bunch of hands shoot out very proudly, they you know, chests puff out. And he says, So me and my buddies have a name for you. You guys are the chicken expletive club. And the hands go back down, and uh, they're sort of sheepish. Meaning but, if meaning you're— There's a point here. Exactly. And the point was, you guys aren't taking ambitious enough cases. If, if you never lose, it means you're only taking easy cases. Exactly. You're taking the low-hanging fruit. And that's not justice. You're trying to protect a record. But being a prosecutor for the government is not about protecting a record. It's not about going win, um, you know, uh, going undefeated. 10-0, right. Right. It is about doing justice, and sometimes doing justice means that you take a hard case and present your evidence to a jury, and then juries are unpredictable. And sometimes they go with you, and sometimes they don't, but justice has been
0: served. That's a really insightful position from someone who's the head of a department of of prosecutors. Like, we don't really know a lot about Comey other than the recent— news flow which has been insane right in other words he's a principled guy who's telling them hey the hell with your record you have to do justice comey
1: is principled i, I agree i mean he's got um he's imperfect i say i have another episode where he really blinks on a corporate prosecution in the mm-hmm. book about kpmg um and uh, you know he is uh, a guy who thinks a great deal of himself um but it's it's a very important concept, and you don't see leaders of these organizations um, without a fear of losing. They're terrified of losing, and they're terrified of the humiliation of losing a trial. And you saw that with Preet Bharara, who has a great reputation mm-hmm. as a crusader, especially as the supposed sheriff of Wall Street, but in fact, I think, blinked on investigations and prosecutions of Wall Street banks. And didn't so, want to take the chance he might
0: lose, and, and damage is, didn't is want to take average. the
1: difficult course of doing the tough investigations mm-hmm. and then didn't want to lose his pristine record and take take on for instance stevie Cohn at sac capital didn't you know didn't want to take him to trial because he was worried he might lose and that would that destroy was a tough case aid. also it was a tough case but at some point I arguably just do anything i think justice requires that you take the Stevie Cohn to trial. And the hard cases, you know, you take somebody like Stevie Cohn to trial, you present the evidence in public, you present the evidence to the jury, and if the jury disagrees with you, it's hey, not necessarily exonerated. humiliation. You have been exonerated. Right. And um, that is that is a, a bad day at the
0: office, but it should not be— the overarching goal of the government should not be to win. the. Um, uh, at the very least, there's a failure to supervise case, although that's more civil than criminal if you're talking about uh, SAC Capital, well, just look at what's happened now: as
1: they pay a big fine, mm-hmm. and Stevie Cohn continues to operate, and then you know he's soon going to be back in the hedge fund business. Cost what kind of message business? does this yeah. send to him, to any of his employees, to any other wrongdoer, anybody contemplating a life of crime on Wall Street, of which there are way too many? Um, you know, it sends a terrible message.
0: So you reference KPMG. Let's talk about that, because. I find that to be a fascinating judicial decision, a fascinating case. First, tell us a little bit about what was going on with KPMG that it led to a prosecution. Right. So s-
1: soon after this Arthur Anderson case, as we were talking about, uh, there's an investigation at the Southern District of New York into KPMG. And this was another major auditor, and they were selling illegal tax shelters to to wealthy individuals to uh, help them avoid taxes, huge um,
0: IRS is the people who refer this to IRS uh, refers to refers it. There's huge a big, track record.
1: Um, yeah, there's a big Senate investigation from Carl Levin's group, bipartisan, exposing enormous amount of um, re- deeply questionable dealings. This of should have executives.
0: Been, this should have been a relatively easy prosecution. Well,
1: complicated. It's, it's but complicated tax stuff. But um, a really serious amount, billions and billions of dollars in alleged fraud Mm -hmm. here Um, and lots and lots of paper trail and named partners, named individuals. And the Southern District names over a dozen individuals, mostly KPMG executives. Um, And then what happens is KPMG cuts off their um, paying for their defense. now that wasn't sua that was at the urging well it's incredibly controversial and um what later happens to cut a long story short is that the federal judge in the overseeing the case determines that the prosecutors the government has forced kpmg to cut off the funding for their these executives defense and he throws out the cases against all the individual executives. And he essentially creates out of whole cloth a new constitutional right, the right to have the best attorney <laughs> um, money can buy. If you can afford it, or rather, if your company can afford it, then you are allowed to have um, the uh, the most expensive attorney in the land. Now, I just goes without saying that street criminals and public defenders don't have this right.
0: Well, hold, hold that thought a second. So this is Judge Kaplan in the eastern district or the southern district is that southern district still sitting yeah still sitting a- as is rakoff and a couple of other judges who were referenced in the book right uh, giants of of securities litigation and and all sorts of uh rakoff certainly had, right and a-
1: and kaplan himself is well regarded uh, a um, democratic appointee mm-hmm. um uh but came from the world of corporate law but
0: but here's the, the thing that's so fascinating and you were alleging that There is no right to a near infinite set of resources to hire the most expensive attorneys in the land. Even if you're a corporate executive, even if you've been paid millions of dollars in salary and stock options, why would anyone imagine that you have the right to the most expensive counsel in the world? In the book, you show examples that are insane how criminals, how blue-collar criminals, are routinely denied the right to counsel, including a lawyer arrested for Dewey on the way to trial. And the court said, no, he's he's fine. There was no ineffective assistance counsel just because he's arrested. But uh, that was just the most egregious. But there are hundreds of examples of non-white-collar criminals who are really prevented the right to a, a lawyer and exactly. the supreme court seems okay with it
1: yeah it, this is an undercurrent is just the terrible double standard here between street criminals and white collar criminals in a in american jurisprudence um but the you know even if you argue that it is uh it does not sit well with us for an employer to cut off the legal defense for wrongdoing especially in the course of doing your job as a journalist i want ProPublica to pay for my legal defense if i'm accused of libel um even if we think that that was um uh, questionable and debatable and i go back and forth on the the actual merits of the case one thing is i don't think that the Cases needed to be thrown out. I think the prosecutions Mm -hmm. could have gone forward against the executives. The second thing is that it had had an enormous effect on these guys, the prosecutors' reluctance to charge individuals. So you have Anderson, where they don't want to indict um, any companies. Mm-hmm. Then you have KPMG, where after that, they're very reluctant to prosecute top executives. So what are they left with? It's settlements. And these companies get away with paying, writing a check and um, wiping the slate
0: clean. To be fair, you can't really expect a sitting judge to understand the concept of judicial precedent when issuing a decision <laughs> i mean he would actually have to be oh wait he was a sitting judge isn't that he what was, they do isn't that what case law I mean, is he, he was
1: very precedent? proud he had his wife come to that to watch. Uh, to watch when he read the ruling i mean this is one of his, what he views as one of his crowning achievements
0: we have been speaking with Jesse Eisinger. He is the author of the new book, the let's call it The Chicken Club, about the Justice Department's failure to prosecute white-collar criminals. Check out my daily column. You can find that on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
1: If you're having a business dispute, the process can be slow and drawn out, especially if you rely on litigation in the courts. You can wait for years before your case is resolved, and the longer your case proceeds, the more your case can cost. Not with the American Arbitration Association. Arbitration or mediation with the American Arbitration Association is faster. In fact, nearly 50% of our cases settle prior to hearings. ADR.org. Resolve faster.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Jesse. Thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to this. I have too, Barry. This has been great. I got like eighty pages left in the book. I was plowing through it the past week. Thank you. And, and there are there are things in it that are just infuriating. Good, infuriating. Good. I don't know if that was your your purpose. Absolutely, the, my the, intent the, is to uh, make people outraged. the The assistance of counsel stuff is just insane. The it's more than a double standard it's if you're poor and probably of color or lower income lower economic strata hey you should have thought about that before you committed the crime you don't have a lawyer (laughs) got to plan ahead but if you're wealthy if you're a white collar criminal well you planned ahead and you worked for a big company and they could certainly pay for your your uh lawyer no matter what it costs that's what the Constitution guarantees. Not only that,
1: but the courtesy afforded these lawyers. So what happens is you get, um, if you're the subject of an investigation, the target of an investigation, you never see a prosecutor. You um, They bring your lawyer in for a polite series of conversations about what their evidence is, what your defense might be. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an enormous number of uh, fights over what you have to produce in discovery. The public never sees any of this. Um, you are treated with the utmost grace and respect and politesse. Um, suffice it to say, street criminals don't quite get
0: this. Now, now, didn't people like Spitzer and Giuliani start the frog march? They would walk into a place, yeah. blue jackets, with the windbreakers with FBI or DEA or whatever, on the back, and they would grab whoever, put him in handcuffs and march him out uh, with oh what a coincidence there's all the media waiting with TV and and gams. yeah so
1: occasionally you get a prosecutor with um, ambitions not to go into big white shoe firms mm-hmm. um, and so they uh, you know they wreak havoc um, and they kind of do their jobs I think Giuliani after uh, you know before being a kind of um, overly uh, cruel, And not particularly competent mayor uh, was um, was an aggressive prosecutor, but there was an enormous backlash after him. Mm -hmm. Um, The courts then, uh, oddly enough, kind of take it on themselves. They see their role as to correct overly zealous prosecutors, um, not in street criminals where they're often affirming them, but in corporate arena in white collar criminals. They they kind of get their backs up. Exactly. You know,
0: it's it's you don't relate to the crackhead. You don't relate to the guy stealing whatever, ten bucks if you're a judge who's gone to college law school exactly. and you live in suburbia. I mean there is a
1: lot of elite affinity I think um that kind of undergirds both the prosecutions the prosecutors are from the same schools mm-hmm. and they when they're prosecuting these people they're either prosecuting their um their peers or their parents of their peers and their the parents of their peers are being defended by their boss's former boss right. um the, this is just this whole milieu that they're in the judges come from it, it we talked about Lewis Kaplan in the southern district earlier he was a paul weiss partner right um and so you know when he says uh, he's looking at um the prosecutors cutting off the uh defense funding from top law firms and top lawyers That's Paul weiss. Firms. yeah he thinks like you guys this is just not done or <laughs> i don't know what he's thinking but it, you know this it's you can read into that this is improper you, this is uh, we do not do this
0: in this country you use the example of bill bennett who was came out of was it the Bush or the Reagan White House Bob Bennett
1: yeah 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 Bob Bennett the um, you, who uh, brother is, to William um, Bennett who was uh, the uh, he is um, uh, you know he's President Clinton's personal lawyer mm-hmm. um, and he negotiates on behalf of KPMG mm-hmm. they get a power lawyer and he's incredibly savvy and he's um, not
0: just a courtroom litigator he's a guy in the halls of power in the white house in congress he is there mixing it up oh, with yeah. oh with the head of the appropriations committee who calls the Justice Department and says we're having a little bit of problem funding your agency?
1: <laughs> exactly, and what he what he does is that's when, not an exaggeration, When the Southern District, well, when the Southern District is prosecuting KPMG, they keep issuing ultimatums to him, and he keeps saying, "Okay, okay." And what what he's really doing is he's gone right to the top of the Bush Administration, uh, Department of Justice, right to the Attorney General, and right to the Deputy Attorney General, who by this time is none other than Jim Comey. Mm-hmm. And Jim Comey calls down to the, calls up to the Southern District U.S. Attorney at the time and says, you guys have to. You can't indict KPMG. You have to post keep, Arthur. Anderson. Try to post Arthur Anderson. Um, you know, and it's unsaid that we don't want this. It's unsaid that we uh, are worried about what uh, having another Anderson on our. Did hands. he say
0: uh, you have to lay off this Russia investigation? Today? Is that a, <laughs> effectively what he said? Lift to them? the cloud.
1: Um, no, he's found a spine uh, in Since. this administration. <laughs> exactly. When it comes to that kind of thing, they do better than uh, corporate prosecutions. I got to say. Really. Um, well, you know. I think that this elite affinity does not plague them when it comes to corrupt politicians. They look at somebody like, look at Pareto preparara when he looks at Sheldon Silver or Dean Skellos these mm-hmm. top New York State politicians, he sees them as scummy. They're dirty as, to him, yeah. and, and um, they weren't afraid to go. Well, after they didn't him. go, you know. And I think it helps that you know that it outrages them. I think that these people are moral, um, but it uh, you know that they didn't go to the same schools and they didn't aren't at the same law firms. You know, uh, Sheldon Silver was a kind of two bit. Uh, plaintiff's lawyer and so um they have a very different attitude to those people than they do to a lloyd Blankfein or a jamie diamond um or they treat them with much greater respect
0: and to be fair lloyd Blankfein and jamie diamond have not been accused of any undoing and any uh wrongdoing yeah wrongdoing.
1: exactly i'm just saying that they but CEOs in this country get the kind of respectful treatment steve jobs got enormously respectful treatment, despite the even, option uh, backdating despite the stock option backdating but despite um it being dead to rights on a uh a collusion over uh, engineer salaries right, If you remember right. that's sure google things apple that, everybody. Things that people have gone to prison
0: for um and that's a recent development only in the past 10 15 years well, so there's a- never
1: been a Golden Age where the rich and powerful really had to fear for their Liberty if they stepped over the <laughs> line but I as I say in the book there have been Silver Ages there have been better periods right. so we had Morgan saw in the 60s um, and Bob Fisk in the 70s do focusing on individuals taking on high-level corporations um, and then we had Giuliani we had the Enron Worldcom uh, Adelphia prosecutions now we are in a terrible Crisis.
0: So if you if you want to commit widespread fraud, don't be a Bernie Madoff. Don't open a small hedge fund. Run a big bank. Run a big compor- big corporation. Run a big and you're pretty much
1: bulletproof. Um, run a big corporation. Surround yourself with um, compliance lawyers, officers, accounts. lawyers. Um, don't ask too many questions about a division that is making too much money. Um, uh, be studiously incurious.
0: Um, uh, studiously incurious. Yeah. And that's a. That's a title to the book that we can actually say on the radio. (laughs) There you go. Studiously Incurious, The CEO Problem
1: in America. When you want to investigate um, the wrongdoing at your company, hire a firm that is also, a law firm that is also incurious enough not to ask uh, questions of things that will lead the the investigation to the C-suite or the
0: boardroom. So you reference in the book the ability of accountant firms and law firms to provide cover For what's pretty obvious frauds and pretty obvious um, studious incuriosity, how significant are those organizations to the institutionalization of fraud? Well, we
1: talked about it earlier that um – the law firms are key to this now Mm -hmm. because they conduct the internal investigations and the prosecutors don't do it, especially if it's something like overseas wrongdoing. Um, The Department of Justice thinks that it cannot prosecute um, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act bribery uh, abroad Which is because they can't. What um, it's they, the it's law. Not that they? It's not that they can't prosecute it; it's that they can't investigate it. Um, and so they outsource the investigations to companies, and they say, "What well, you know? Just think of the resources that we would need to do that." And my answer is: If you don't have the resources to sufficiently prosecute something, focus on the things that you can prosecute, mm-hmm. or get the resources. It's not an excuse to just say our. Jobs are hard, or we don't have the money. We don't. I mean, wait, what do we got? What Let's do we got a go DOJ
0: for? Right. That's exactly right. It, it's you know one of the things that I was thinking about when I was reading the book was it wasn't just the lawyers; it was the accountants. And one of the parallel developments over the lack of accountability for corporate executives, including accountants, lawyers, auditors, etc. I don't think it's a coincidence that as There's been less prosecutions of wrongdoing, and the accounting rules have gotten squishier and squishier with uh, who can really rely on on corporate statements anymore, simultaneous to the huge rise of indexing, that people Hmm. have kind of reached the conclusion, hey, listen, I can't tell— what earnings legitimately are. How can I be a value investor if these are all nonsense? So I might as well just buy the whole market and hope for the best.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And I, um, uh, if you look at the AIG investigation, and I go through a series of AIG wrongdoings and investigations in the book, um, the last one where they blew up on the CDS market and the, the mortgage market um, sort of pivots on a very arcane little handwritten note in the margins from the auditors at PwC and the higher ups at the Department of Justice are so shaken by the existence of this note that seems to suggest that PwC partners had some knowledge of this Mm -hmm. that they put the kibosh on the whole indictment uh, the whole investigation so that it's so in other
0: words we found in this year that senior people knew about this we better not
1: right yeah exactly instead of saying my my God! If the PwC people knew about this, maybe uh, maybe things were worse. Maybe we need to go higher up. Maybe we need to prosecute more. Maybe we need to put a lot of pressure on the auditors. What the innovation in the '70s from the Southern District and from the SEC? Um, and I cover this in the book stanley sporkin sort of the Mm -hmm. father of enforcement um at the sec they put pressure on the auditors and the lawyers they put pressure on the enablers um he calls them the gatekeepers um and the problem is that we don't do that anymore we don't put pressure on the lawyers and we don't put pressure on the lawyers and the auditors to lesser extent but the lawyers especially um one of the big problems is that these guys want to go become corporate lawyers and make two five eight million dollars a year revolving door uh, so the revolving door is this perennially corrosive um aspect of this whole thing
0: before i get to my favorite questions i have to at least during the podcast make reference to the actual title of the book and uh Very hopefully good. hopefully this will make through one bleeped this is By the way, published by Simon and Schuster coming out. July July eleventh. July July eleventh, yeah. The Chicken Shit Club, the Justice Department, and the Failure to Prosecute White Collar Criminals. And the phrase chicken shit club comes from the speech by Jim Comey. That's pretty much how you managed to get Simon and Schuster to let the name sneak by. Exactly. That that's astonishing. What was that what was by the way, I have this fantasy about the big short. Yeah. There's a line in in it from I forgot who uh, in the book says the line, um, but the line is F- "the poor," <laughs> and I just have this picture of Michael Lewis arguing, "No, no, no! The Big Short is the subtitle. F- the Poor is the name of the <laughs> book, and it's a quote because this guy said it, and it, obviously it, that doesn't happen." But um. The S word seems less offensive than the F word these days. Uh, For think, sure. Yeah, yeah. So what was the pushback like? And by the way, everything I just said, I'm sure we'll get into that. <laughs> But what was the pushback like... To the name even though you know it was what
1: a- uh i kept waiting for it and it it never materialized i think really? simon schuster
0: you know uh they're i adults. think the book
1: they're adults uh also the book business is tough these days and you got to get people's attention it's, somehow
0: it's it's um, click worthy it's a little buzz exactly yeah so sort of you know uh, my
1: wife sort of feels like it's a little crude uh, she'd it like is. something a little bit more refined um i felt like look this is this is, really encapsulates it. And it also is, it, you know, I couldn't come up with it on my own. It came from right. Jim Comey. He really said it. Um, and you so get lucky organic.
0: suddenly he's in the news and talk about for, I, good uh, fortune. You know,
1: I really uh, was worried when his reputation sank in the uh, election with uh, – Uh, the hillary intervention in the campaign and everybody thought uh, we're so you know on the left we're so angry about hillary now he's revived (laughs) that's all good for the book
0: so so let's uh (laughs) jump over to my favorite 10 questions and uh this is sort of a speed round. round Yep. okay um tell us one important thing people don't know about your background oh man um well, uh, I have no education
1: beyond college. I didn't right. study uh, law. I didn't study any finance. I didn't study accounting. I'm faking everything.
0: Okay. That's reasonable. James Glick said something very similar. Every time he picks up a new subject, um, it's it, that's his education. He becomes educated enough to be able to ask questions. You must do something similar.
1: Yeah, I'm very curious.
0: By the way, the the best thing about this show is I've become an inveterate name dropper. Not on purpose, on purpose, <laughs> but it's like, well, when I was speaking to Jim Click, he said, and I love his his. If you haven't read the information,
1: it's oh, just I should, astonishing. yeah,
0: yeah, astonishing. Um, tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced your approach to research and writing. Huh. That's a good question. I, um, you know, I read the uh, the
1: big books, the uh, big journalism books like um, *Den of Thieves* and *Barbarians at the Gate*. Um, that was; uh, those were big influential books. I had um, a bunch of great. Uh, colleagues at the street.com where we really kind of learned finance and investing and um, investigations. Uh, Dave Kansas was the editor there. My colleagues like Colin Barr was an editor at mm-hmm. the Wall Street Journal and Alex Berenson who went on to the New York Times and John Edwards was an, another editor at the Wall Street Journal. Um, bunch of really talented people there. Uh, so that uh, those were probably the early influences and then uh, Larry and hired me at the Wall Street Journal um, he's one of the best
0: editors of mm-hmm. our era so uh, those guys all sort of helped my teach colleague me. my colleague Josh Brown calls the street.com the unknown motown of financial journalism I'm
1: so glad that he appreciates it
0: because um,
1: we really it's all been lost to history um, but half uh, my columns from there are, are gone yeah I mean, i'm it, glad it i grabbed them um, and put him on the blog you know uh and jim kramer um to his credit uh really kind of invented this whole kind of way of vernacular of speaking about mm-hmm. doing financial journalism but back then it was serious financial journalism we did an enormous number of real investigations deep reporting um it was innovative it was online we weren't it, pushing nobody had seen anything yeah.
0: like it before it was totally snarky it was really yeah, unique. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was a lot of fun. I, uh, that's how I know Jesse long enough that we go back to that period. And full disclosure, if I, I have to mention this because if I don't, someone's going to send a, a nasty email. When Bailout Nation um, was in the fourth uh, edling, and I'm arguing with uh, McGraw-Hill over their S&P 500 division— I'm sorry, their Standard & Poor credit rating division, and they're not happy with the chapter that's critical of them— Um, Jesse wrote a a delightful column for Portfolio that pretty much set the tone for all the other coverage on the book, which was um, Simon & Schuster – I'm sorry. McGraw-Hill drops book critical of S&P credit division, and that really colored all of the subsequent coverage and it ended up going to Wiley and and that transition just brought more attention to it. Oh, I was but, glad to help. Well, I I have to say thank you and I also I think I am obligated to disclose that otherwise uh otherwise is trouble. Well, Spy Magazine called this log rolling in a yes, time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> by the way, Den of Thieves written by James Stewart, who's who's a legend, and then Barbarians at the Gate was was that co-authored?
1: Yeah, Brian Burrow and John Hellier.
0: Yep. And, and also to to rock star um, journalists out there for yeah. uh, do, doing God's work um, <laughs> talk about so so you mentioned a handful of mentors primarily um, Larry Grasi is legendary yeah and lots of those folks at the streetcom went to the four winds and they're all running major uh, I think uh, the who is the CEO, the head of USA Today, there's like a whole, you could find people everywhere.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, Dave uh, Calloway? Dave Calloway, no, he wasn't there. But there was um, a guy, uh, Dave Kansas, was, yeah, uh, um, was no the longer editor. was uh, He is, he's, he's no longer in journalism. Mm-hmm. Or, I don't know where Dave, I haven't, I've lost touch with him. But I'm sure I'm going to forget A Million Mentors, of course. Of course. When you,
0: um, when you do a list like this. But uh, um, he was one. Um. Let's talk about investors. What investors um, influenced your thinking about markets? Hmm. Um, well, uh,
1: you know, it was interesting. The, what happened to me was that uh, I was working for this obscure operation, the mm-hmm. street.com. You know, nobody's really talking to me. Um, and so I kind of naturally gravitated to the people who would talk to me. Sure. Um, the kind of desperate weirdos and quirks, and, and I, you know, cranks and uh, um, and outsiders and most of them were short sellers Mm -hmm.
0: Um, and so you know and 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 in context this is the 90s right right and uh, the big bulls they have access to the new york times wall street journal cnbc they have access to all the regular media right
1: and and the business journalism was, I would argue, even worse than it is today. And I don't think I don't have a great. Um, See, I think it's great, great today if you're selective.
0: Um, that's a well, whole other discussion. You can
1: find great journalism, but you know, overall, it's still too generous and too uh, there's too much happy talk, and there's uh, it's too adulatory. But
0: uh, back then, it was even worse. Sturgeon's law applies to everything. Yes, so. that's true. But um, so, but so. so
1: um, So, you know, so, uh, and I always thought, you know, if a company is making money, uh, if a company develops its product, I was doing pharmaceuticals and biotech then, you know, if the companies, the science works and uh, covering, exactly. (laughs) Um, And uh, the science works and the drug works and um, they test it and they get it approved by the FDA and they sell it and they make money on it. All those things they are supposed to do those things. So that's not news. It's only Mm -hmm. news when those things, they don't do it. So I gravitated to when the drug was killing people, when they were lying about the drug's results, when they couldn't sell it, when they couldn't make money on it. And those were all stories to me. And the short sellers were the people I talked to. And so I learned from the best short sellers in the game. You Give know, us some G- examples. Well, Jim Chanos was one of them, although he didn't do as much biotech. Um, but there, you know, a lot of them were... Well, a lot of them. these guys are sort of out of the game. So mm-hmm. like Dave Shalley um is probably one of the best short sellers ever in the and I hope that he forgives me for outing him um but now he's retired um and uh he worked for a uh a, a shop on um in California uh, and um, he, he's one of the guys who did the most work that he would have been he would probably would have been the best prosecutor in the Department really? of Justice drop him into the Department of Justice today just and he would steam be rolling. hands down mm-hmm. the best prosecutor he was one of the most brilliant guys was he a and lawyer he also? With, no, nope he was just a sort of finance guy but just a nose for frauds and uh, um, he knows Mark Cohodes who was a uh, sure. big short seller you guys know he had a partner who I won't name because he's still in the business um uh these guys were uh these guys were the most influential they taught me how to read a balance sheet which i can do in a rudimentary fashion they taught me how to look for frauds um identify them and um really that was that was an incredible learning experience and you know the only reason they were talking to me is no one else would talk to them
0: i love that let's talk about books you you mentioned Den of Thieves and Barbarians at the Gates. Yeah. What are what are some of the books that are amongst your favorites or that you found influential? By the way, fiction, nonfiction, finance, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, I was trying to think about that earlier today. You know, I think that the um one of the biggest influences that sort of had me on a path to journalism that I read in college was A Bright Shining Lie from Neil Sheehan, which mm-hmm. really exposed the government's lies during Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I didn't have any idea I wanted to be a journalist, but that's a piece of nonfiction journalism. It's brilliant, and it really it captures the Vietnam era almost better than any other book, although um, there are a lot of classics from there. But I was, I was that I liked. I loved Dispatches. I loved the journalism of... Michael Hare. I love the journalism of the Vietnam era. Mm. So that was great. And then, you know, I gravitated to the great um, uh, essayists, polemicists like George Orwell and... um, H.L. Mencken. Uh, those were the people that I read. I read Joan Didion. So I was sort of gravitating to this kind of nonfiction mm-hmm. reportage. Um, those were so, sort of... So we all know Orwell wrote 1984, An yeah. Animal
0: Farm. What Mencken piece uh, influenced you?
1: Oh, well, Mencken really does a lot of essays. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's do, he's doing... He's a critic, really. He's doing essays. His collection of essays are... There's no one sort of novel or one big book that, uh, that he writes, but he's um, really kind of brilliant and lacerating and hilarious um all at the um, same time yeah and uh coins a million words like the boob um so he's he's very entertaining and joan didion joan didion uh, slouching to bethlehem mm-hmm. um is a, oh, that was a right, huge the white book. album um those are collections of essays she's a beautiful writer lucid um uh extraordinary observer of um of humanity just the kind of um, the the perfect, the best, probably the best writer of uh, in any journalism. I mean, I you know I liked a lot of new journalism, so I read a lot of
0: Wolf, uh, Tom Wolf, and
1: that kind of stuff. So, but I think she's probably the best of that era.
0: So, since you've joined the industry, what do you think has changed? What's the most significant outside of the obvious oh, business model issue
1: the The biggest transformation in the business is the discipline um and fear that executives have when they talk to journalists. So when I broke into the business in the early 1990s, I could call up a desk and talk to anybody on Wall Street. Really? Um and I got a great education and found out a lot of the, what was going on by ta- I covered IPOs and I talked just called all the desks and talked to all the heads of the IPO operation. There was no PR involved. Mm-hmm. Um And now if you call – and any sell-side analyst was desperate to talk. Um, Now if you call anyone, they understand that they can be fired for talking to you as a journalist. Um, And they're so fearful for their jobs. And they're just – they're so loyal to their companies. I think it's it's fear but also this kind of loyalty that they – um, they and disdain for the press. The press has really fallen in estimation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the combination of that has resulted in this kind of PR grip on businesses that makes it so much more difficult. It's so much harder now to report on corporate America.
0: Hmm. That That's shocking and fascinating. Um, what's the next positive shift you see coming? Um, in the business? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, well, I would say two things.
1: One is... What ProPublica is proving is that the nonprofit model for investigative journalism works. Mm-hmm. Um, when we started out, that was a question mark, whether there was going to be enough uh, there were enough money in foundations and wealthy individuals to support this nonprofit. And I think nonprofit investigative journalism is not the solution to the journalism crisis where we don't hold the powerful accountable enough, but it is part of the solution. So I think that is the most powerful development that's happened over the last decade.
0: And you it's generated, I just
1: just point, it's it sort of pulled a lot of people to realize that investigative journalism is incredibly important and mm-hmm. it's central to the mission of journalism. Journalism is not about selling clicks. So BuzzFeed has um, invested in investigative journalism and Washington Post has done more in investigative journalism. The New York Times, that's in part uh, um, because they're waking up to, they're reawakening to their mission. And I think ProPublica has contributed to that.
0: What do you do outside of the office to relax? What do you do uh, to keep mentally and/or physically fit?
1: Oh, I you know I do a lot. My um, my work is not particularly all-consuming um, so I cook I hang out with my children I um, I listen to music I'm trying to I don't know a lot about classical music but I'm starting to uh, listen to it I i always sort of learning I like teaching myself the trees now you know trying to figure out what they are so I walk around with a book'm I'm, I'm, I'm that guy in the park walking around with a little <laughs> tree book I'm like I'm the most embarrassing dad you can imagine that sounds
0: pretty uh pretty amusing um a millennial someone just Coming out of college comes up to you and says, hey, I'm interested in a career in journalism. What sort of advice would you give them?
1: Go broad, which mm. is what I did. Um, you, it's easier to find stories, and they're more desperate for copy from there because um, there aren't, aren't that many. So, uh, And do what you like. Don't uh, do what you think you can make a living at. Um, gravitate to something you like and really understand it and develop it, and the livelihood will follow.
0: And our final question: What is it you know about Wall Street and journalism today that you wish you knew twenty years ago? That is a good question.
1: Um, I think I I wish that I had been even more jaded about the <laughs> the systemic corruption um that it exists in the system and the and the malign incentives um You're i would, too optimistic. Is i that? was too <laughs> <laughs> i i thought that the corruption happened at the smaller companies or was an unusual thing i think that the system is quite troubled and
0: needs um needs more vigilant oversight we have been speaking to author and journalist jesse eisinger If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, SoundCloud, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, or the Bloomberg Terminal, and you can see any of the other 140-something-such previous podcasts. I would be remiss if I did not thank my technical producer, Medina Parwana, recording engineer par excellence, Taylor Riggs is our Booker producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. If you enjoy this conversation, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org. Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org.